I preached a little bit over, so we're going to try to cut things uh, short a little bit today. That and the fact that we've got uh, Pot Bless coming right afterward, too. Okay, so communion meditation. Uh, always helps if I turn it on. Okay, uh, keep yourself in God's love. What does that mean? Well, we'll find out in just a minute. We're going to be reading from the book of Jude, verses 20 through 23. There's no chapters in Jude because it's only uh, uh, one chapter long. So we're going to read verses uh, 20 through 23. So you can follow along on the PowerPoint presentation or turn your Bible if you want to. Okay, Jude, chapter, uh, Jude uh, verses 20 through 23. But you, beloved, building yourself in, up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt others, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Father, as we uh, go through the communion service, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to search our hearts, Lord, that the spotlight of your Holy Spirit illuminate anything in our hearts that are defiled, and Lord, to help us to think and meditate upon keeping ourselves in your love. And uh, Lord, I know that you love us unconditionally, but we can cut ourselves off from your love. And Lord, we are to avoid that at all costs by, uh, if there's any sin in our life, repenting of it right away. And thank you, Lord, for blessing this message that you shared with me and I, in turn, share with your people. I thank you for being with us now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the book of Jude. Many of you may not be even aware that there's a book called Jude. It, it, there is. It's found in the second to the last book in the Bible. And it's a very uh, uh, powerful book. Um, it was one of two New Testament books that was written by a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that Jesus had four brothers after the flesh. They, of course, must have been the uh, uh, sons of Mary that were born after the Lord Jesus Christ uh, was born. And these two brothers that wrote books in the Bible are James, the book of James, and the book of Jude. Jude. Now, in uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it lists the brothers of uh, Jesus and uh, James is mentioned there. And Jude is also mentioned, but he's called Judas. But uh, naturally, it looks like they shortened it up, Jude, because of the negative connotations with that name Judas. Anybody know anybody named Judas? <laughs> kind of fallen out into favor. But actually, back in the time of Jesus, Judas was a very common name. In fact, there was another one of Jesus' disciples that was named Judas too. 
You read that uh, about that in the book of John. It specifically says it's not, not Judas Iscariot. Now, of course, Judas Iscariot gave that name Judas a bad name. Okay, now the book itself, if you ever read it, and by the way, there's only 25 verses in it, so you can read the entire book in less than probably five minutes, you know, if you want to take the time to read it. It's a very powerful book. It's uh, very confrontational. You know, he does what the, we've used to call, tell it like it is. How many of you like it when somebody tells you it like it is? That's what we need to be doing as Christians. We need to tell it like it is. Now, it's uh, apologetic in nature. Now, when I say apologetic, I don't mean the way that the uh, apologetic has been weakened throughout the uh, ages, you know, uh, of, you know, saying you're sorry, things like that. No, that's not what the book is about. It's apologetic in that it is a defense. That's what uh, uh, making an apology means. You know, in the the original meaning of the word is to make a defense. Uh, Jude says specifically in verse three, contend earnestly for the uh, the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Now it speaks out against certain people who had crept into the church and were teaching the grace of God as a license to uh, sin. In particular, uh, sexual immorality is singled out. In verse uh, 4, uh, Jude writes, let me go ahead and quote it directly here. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this con um, condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness or immorality and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Jude also touches about that later on in the epistle in verse uh, 7. He singles out Sodom and Gomorrah, which of course were well renowned for their immorality. And then in verse 11, he talks about these people following after the error of Balaam. Well, if you read the Old Testament, you know what the error of Balaam was. It was twofold. First of all, he was peddling the word of God to the highest bidder. The king of uh, Moab, I believe it was, you know, was paying him money so that he would curse Israel. And he says, well, I can't say anything except what the Lord directs me. So the king of Moab led him up on these high mountains overlooking where uh, uh, Israel was camped and he says, now curse them. And instead of cursing him, Balaam delivers a blessing. And the king of Moab gets really mad and he says, I'm, I'm paying you to curse them and you're blessing them. And he says, I can't say anything except uh, what God gives me. But then at the end of everything, he says, I'll tell you what, you know, king, if you want Israel to be cursed, entice your young women to lead astray the young men of the Israelites. And that immorality will cause God to curse them. And so that was the error of Balaam is advocating not only peddling the word of God for money, but advocating immorality to be practiced. Okay, so the Arab Balaam. 
Also, selfishness and pride are mentioned in the book as being the sins of these uh, uh, false teachers. And Judah is, Jude, Jude is saying in the book to beware of such people and not to follow, fall into the same trap yourselves. Now, the first two verses that I read, they're what we would call introspective. You know, uh, and that is we talk, are to look inwardly. We're to examine ourselves. And we are to do what we can to keep from falling into the same trap as the, these immoral people. You know, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us to do the same thing. We're going to partake of uh, communion a little bit later on. And I've told you that the purpose of communion is twofold. What's the first purpose? The first purpose is to remember the Lord's death until He returns. Remember, remind yourself of the terrible price that God had to pay to reconcile us to Himself. That is the death of His dear Son on the cross. That His shed blood would purge us of our sins. And the second purpose of communion is to examine ourselves. Verse 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which gives the general format of communion, the one that we use every uh, week, it tells yourself to let everyone examine himself or herself. Paul also says in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he says, examine yourselves that you be in the faith. So we're to continually take an introspection, a stock of what our life is all about and how it looks in the eyes of God. And if we're not satisfied with what we see, then we're to repent of the sin and get right with Him. Now Jude uh, verse 20, the first part there, tells us how we can avoid this trap of falling into sin. It says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. In other words, <clears throat> strengthen your relationship with God. How many of you need to strengthen your relationship with God? Everybody should raise their hands there. There's not a single person in this room, including the pastor, that does not need to strengthen his relationship or her relationship with God. Because we can always do more. Amen? Amen? There's always things that we can do to draw closer to the Lord. The closer you draw to God, the more acutely you become aware of sin in your life. And hopefully you're going to cleanse that. You're going to repent of it and get right with God. You become aware of your sin and you become aware of uh, maybe sin that is on other people too. And how we're going to deal with that, we'll talk about a little bit later on. The last part of the verse 20 gives a good method of building yourself up in the most holy faith. It says, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now this could be construed as praying in the prayer tongue. 
We're a Pentecostal church here. Periodically we have services where we come and ask people to come forward who want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's generally the gift of speaking in other tongues. And if you've got the gift of tongues, you know what? You're to use it every day. It's not just a one-shot deal, you know, on a Pentecostal uh, uh, altar call that we give periodically. It's something you need to be exercising every day. Tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 4, it says, He that speaks in, an, uh, in a tongue edifies himself or builds himself up. Isn't that what uh, we just read Jude talked about? Building yourself in the most holy, uh, up yourself in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse Verses 14 and 15 says, For if I pray in a tongue, so there is such a thing as the prayer tongue. These people that deny the baptism of the Holy Spirit being for today, ignore that particular uh, uh, passage there. They just passed right over it. If I pray in a tongue, there is such a thing as the prayer tongue. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit is praying, but my understanding is unfruitful. So your spirit, when you pray in a tongue, your spirit prays directly to God and it bypasses your intellect. Now, why is that a good thing? You might say, well, you know, I don't want my intellect bypassed. The problem is your intellect in our fallen nature has a tendency to sometimes get in the way. And you start praying things that are not in the will of God. But if your spirit is praying directly to God, the Holy Spirit is praying through you. And the Holy Spirit knows what God's will is. Amen? And so then Paul concludes in verse 15. What is it then? I will pray in the spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. I mentioned before, you know, when I taught about this, the construction there in the Greek language is what they call the date of a means. That is, I, literally, I am praying by means of my spirit <clears throat> and uh, not by, by means of my intellect. But it says that I'll do both. I will pray in the spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing in the Spirit so that you can sing in the Spirit too. You can sing in tongues. And I will sing with the understanding also. Okay? So one way to pray in the Spirit is to use your prayer tongue. Now, I don't want to restrict it to that because I don't believe that it, uh, the Scripture does. Praying in the Spirit means that you pray as the Holy Spirit leads. And again, if you pray in the tongue, you kind of bypass that human intellect. And that's what you want to do in your prayer life, is you want to bypass pass your intellect because your intellect can get in the way. Jude verse 21 is a warning. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That 
you know, it was, you think about the logical conclusion there. It says, keep yourself in the, the love of God. That means that we can also keep ourselves from the love of God. Now, that does not mean that God ever ceases loving us. God always loves us. Everybody say that. God will always love us. One more time. God will always love us. A lot of times we sin or something like that. And what happens? The devil comes by and says, okay, you sinned it. You really blew it. God doesn't love you anymore. That's a lie of the, uh, Satan. You can hear the hiss of the serpent there. Because God always loves us. No matter what we do. But we can keep ourselves from that love by allowing sin into our lives. We allow ourselves to withhold that love from reaching us. And how? We allow sin to reign supreme in our lives. And you know what that does? Every time you sin, you know what you do? You build up a wall between you and God. And that's why Jesus died, is to break down that wall so you can have a personal relationship with Him, the living God. So don't build up that wall again. It says in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor His ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, at, that He will not hear. So, if that's true of our prayers, it's also true of His love and mercy for us. God and His love and mercy are always there. Anytime you want, you can reach out to them. But the sin builds up the wall separating us and then we can no longer feel that love until we repent of that sin and get right with God. Now verses 22 and 23 of the passage that I read turn outward. You know, verses 20 and 21 you know, talking about building yourself up in your most holy faith and keeping yourself in the love of God, that's introspective. Whereas verses 20 and 22, uh, 22 and 23, they turn outward. That is to those around us that might have been deceived by those around us that have fallen into the sinful attitudes and the practices of the people that Jude is speaking against. You know, there are other of God's warnings to us about not continuing to practice sin in our lives. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and uh, 13, the writer of Hebrews warns us, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That's what sin does, brothers and sisters. It hardens your heart 
and it deceives you. Sin is very deceptive. Proverbs 21 verse, I mean 29 verse 1 says, He who often is rebuked and hardens his neck, that is, hardens his heart, will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Very solemn warning. Watch out, in other words. Don't allow your heart to be hardened. There's a couple of other, three, three other passages that I have up there. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 29. Also chapter 6, verses 4 and 6. And 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. You might want to make a note of those. I think the gravest warning is that in the first one right there, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 29. It says, if for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer may, remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose he will be, will he be thought worthy of who is trampled under the Son of God underfoot? Think about that. You continue to sin willfully after you receive the knowledge of the truth. You're trampling the Son of God underfoot. Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. Oh, the blood of Christ, no. No big thing. That's what happens when you allow sin. and It ceases to be a wonder to you. And you begin to treat it like it was a common thing. And you have insulted the spirit of grace. Really solemn warning. Yeah. Amen? You know, think about it. So make a note of those verses. I don't have time to go through the other two, but Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 29. Also Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, and 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. So those verses... Chapter uh, verses 22 and 23 also tell us that we have a responsibility to reprove those who continue to practice sin, those in the church who continue to practice sin. Now Paul talks about one of these people in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's another chapter in the Bible that's worthy of note. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He tells us in verses 5 and 6. He says, your glorying is not good. They were permitting a person to live in open sin in the church. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Now the context of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There was a man that was, it, it, uh, Paul writes that a man should have his father's wife. 
even says this, this is not even practiced among the Gentiles. This is so bad what you're doing. Presumably it's talking about him living, maybe living with his stepmother, or at least uh, uh, it was a common knowledge that he was uh, having relationships with his uh, stepmother. And this prompts that chapter there, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's maybe the strongest rebuke that I can think of that uh, the Apostle Paul ever wrote of his epistles. And he says, you know what, you're Corinthian uh, believers, you're proud of it. Instead of mourning about it like you should be doing, you're proud of it. Why were they proud of it? Well, the big thing in the Greek culture like that is, you know, when the Apostle Paul would open up his, uh, some of his epistles, he would say, grace, mercy, and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, or words to that effect. Okay, grace and mercy, that appealed to the Gentiles. Peace, you know, that, that appeals to the, uh, the Jewish believers. You know, how to, you know, how to, uh, uh, even today, you know, how do Jewish people greet themselves? They say, Shalom. Anybody ever heard that? What does Shalom mean? It means peace. You know, peace upon you. So peace was the big thing for uh, the Jewish believers. But grace and mercy was the big thing for the Gentile believers. So they're proud of this fact that this man is practicing open immorality with his stepmother. And why were they proud of it? Because they were saying, oh, that's how great the grace of God is. You know, the grace of God, there's forgiveness for this man, even though he's doing this horrible sin. And Paul says it ought not to be. This is a grave sin, and you need to be warning about it instead of being proud about it. Now he says, purge out the leaven, the old leaven. That the leaven is the sin that was being practiced by the, this man in there. Leaven is often used in Scripture as a symbol for sin. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, you permit this sin in the, your church, the whole is going to permeate the entire church. It's not just restricted to this one man. It's going to permeate the entire church. Paul is reminding the Corinthian believers in this church that God, Jesus, wants a holy church, pure and spotless. And it cannot be pure and spotless as long as the church allows sin to be there in the camp. And once again, he, he says there... Um, <clears throat> At the end of uh, verse 22, he talks about mercy being available for the penitent. Who are the penitent? The penitent are the people that are repentant. That grace and mercy is available for those that repent based on Jesus' uh, death. Okay. Also in verses 22 and 23. We are told that we are to rebuke those that have sin in their lives. We are to make a direct confrontation uh, <clears throat> with them. 
We see that there's sin in their life. We're to confront them uh, openly. And pointing out that there is sin in their life. And if necessary, we need to use the scriptures to show them that. Now the question is, how do we confront people that have sin in their life? First of all, you know, the thing is, you don't handle everybody the same. You know, you don't handle your own children the same. Right? Some people say, well, I brought up both of my children, or all of my children the same way, and some of them turned out rotten, the others turned out pretty good. Well, the thing is, you don't treat them all the same because they're unique individuals. It says, train up the child in the way he should go, not the way you want him to go, the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So you do it individually. And you pray about it ahead of time and make sure you're going to confront them in the right way. Okay, verse 22 talks about be merciful to those who are doubting. So, you always let them know that God's mercy is available to them. Those that are doubting. And you know what, I, I, when I was going through this, when I was preparing the message yesterday, I went into the uh, Greek text to find out exactly what the words mean. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm more scholarly than anybody around here. Just that I know where to get the information. And, you know, you can all look up Greek words. You know, you can do that if you've got a Greek interlinear New Testament. What's a Greek interlinear New Testament? A Greek interlinear New Testament has the Greek text on top and the direct English translation for each word right underneath it. And if you don't, I've, I've got one of those in, in uh, a book in my library. But I was looking on the internet too. You can just uh, type in, in in Google on your, uh, if you've got the in, uh, uh, access to the internet, just type in Greek interlinear, and it, it will take you to these applications that will do the same thing. So that's all I did is I just checked in the Greek interlinear uh, New Testament. And the word there for doubting is wavering. When you talk about somebody wavering, what do you think of? Talk about, think about somebody on the fence. You know, you're on the fence, you can fall off either direction too. So your task is to take these doubters and make sure they fall off on the right side of the fence. Amen? Okay. Simple there. So this would seem to be those that are new Christians, either new in the faith or maybe they've been newly exposed to these false teachers who talk about the grace of God as a license to go out and sin. You know, and, you know, these people were going around saying that God uh, winks at your sin. You know, you know what I mean? God never winks at your sin, brothers and sisters. He knows it. And there's always going to be a price to be paid for sin in your life. Amen? Okay. 
This is all the more reason to be armed with Scripture when you do the confrontation to the people. So be acquainted with the Scriptures that deal with the works of the flesh. Now, I've given you a couple of them up there. Uh, no, I, I don't have the, the one I was, I'm going to quote right now. Galatians chapter 5, verses uh, uh, 19 through 21 gives the works of the flesh. But there's another one in the following chapter, right after that 1 Corinthians 5 passage, where Paul says uh, right here, uh, do, not, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators... People that practice immorality, the word there in the Greek is porneia. That's where we get our word pornography from. Porneia. Neither porneia, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, that includes homosexuality, uh, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, no explanation needed there, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So if you see somebody practicing any of this in their lives, you confront them. And it says, tell them, it says right there, you continue to practice that and not uh, repent of it. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so know those uh, scriptures. Then it says, save by fear. Okay, some of these people... You know, you just kind of gently break the news to them. You know, you need to get rid of this sin in your life. And try to get them over on the right side of the fence. But there's others that are just well practiced in this. And he says, others save by, with or by fear. Pulling them out of the fire. You keep going that way. You're bound for eternal separation from God. You better get your life straightened out. So in this case, it would seem to be indicate more that these people are more entrenched in their sin. Remember what we just read in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13? Take heed lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There's a hardening of people's hearts if they continue to practice sin. You know, remember also the uh, uh, example of Samson. Remember I told you about Samson? Samson had a little problem with women in his life. In particular, you know, he seemed to want to associate with Gentile women, Philistine women, godless women, instead of associating with godly women. Yet he was called to be a judge of Israel. And so his last love was Delilah. And she worms the secret of his strength out of him. Says, I'm a Nazarite from birth. You know, if my hair was cut, then I would become like a, an ordinary man. And she says, that's it. And she calls the Philistines. And then she lulls him to sleep and then cuts his hair off. And then she says, wake up, Samson, the Philistines are here. She did that uh, about three times before, I think it was. And this time he says, well, I'm going to get up. I'm going to fight off the Philistines like I've done. But he did, it says, one of the most tragic verses in, in the Bible, he knew not that the Lord had departed from him. 
And so the Philistines rushed upon him. They bound him. They put out his eyes. And then they put him to work. They said, well, you know, don't just kill him outright. You know, he's got this strength. We'll put him to work, you know, doing the same thing an ox does. And that is grinding out the grain at a mill. And so that's what sin does in your life. It binds you, it blinds you, and it grinds you. And you're just going round and round grinding at this sin and never getting anywhere in your Christian life. What a tragedy, brothers and sisters. Instead of going forth and accomplishing things for the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom, you're just grinding away at that sin. And so that's why you need to get it out. And the sooner the better. But again, with the mercy of God, still in the backdrop, the uh, Jude uh, reminds us, you know, that, uh, you know, the mercy of God is still available, but they need to remi be reminded of the, their eternal destiny if they continue in their sin. And again, Paul uses as an example that immoral person that's mentioned there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 4 and 5 says... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's telling the uh, uh, Corinthian uh, believers what to do in this case. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, he said, you're gonna, I want you to do this and I'm going to be with you there in spirit. With the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. What that says to me is you deliver him to Satan. You say, okay, Satan, you can have him. You know, and God, remember what uh, Jesus said about uh, the, the devil. He said, the thief comes but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The devil would kill every one of us in a heartbeat if he could do it. But he can't do it unless God allows him to. So Paul says, turn this one over to Satan that, uh, you know, maybe Satan will take his life, but he won't pass that line into eternal damnation that his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, does that teach eternal security? Is God going to do that in every case? We're living in sin Will God take our lives before we cross the line into eternal damnation? You know, some people that believe in once saved, always saved. You know, my mentor, uh, the late Dr. Walter R. Martin, used to teach this. He used to teach that God would take your life before you could cross the line into eternal damnation if you're saved. But Paul's emphasis on this is that the church must do this in order to purge the sin from their church. He writes, he concludes that uh, uh, passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with verses 12 and 13. 
For what have I to do with judging those without sight? You can't judge the people outside if they're practicing sin. That's their choice. Do you not judge those who are inside? We can't judge the ones outside, but we can judge the ones that are inside. Those outside God judges, therefore put away from yourselves that evil person. In other words, kick him out of the church. If he repents and wants to come back, receive him back again. And by the way, if you read the follow-up letter to 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians it appears that that's what happened, is that the man did repent of his sin, and Paul writes back words to the effect in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 through 10. Uh, assuming he's talking about the same man, he said, receive him back into the church because he has repented. The question that I have for those that believe in this eternal uh, security, you know, the once saved, always saved, is if the church had not taken that action, would that man have crossed the line into eternal damnation? The passages read from the book of Hebrews seem to indicate that that's a possibility. Okay, now, we are to hate sin in the church. Paul hated the sin that was being allowed in that Corinthian church. And we should too. We should hate any sin that is in this church. It says in verse, uh, the latter half of uh, verse uh, 23 of Jude, the book of Jude. He says, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now there's different shades of meaning for that word garment in scripture. Remember I talked about the garment in Scripture? I was talking about the righteousness of God. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says that we are as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Think about that. Do you want to stand before God in the day of judgment dressed only in the filthy rags of your own self-righteousness? Many people seem to think, you know, they say, well, I'm, I'm a good person. I, I don't do this. I don't do that. You know, I, I you know, uh, give, you know, when there's a natural disaster or, you know, I read about the poor, hungry, you know, I give to them. You know, as if that was, is going to justify yourself before God. All your righteousnesses, your self works and things like that are as filthy rags before God. The only thing that matters to God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the robe of righteousness that Isaiah also talks about in chapter 61 verse uh, 10. And that's available to every person. We don't have a righteousness of our own. We can only dawn the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is pure, uh, pure and spotless. And we do that by faith. Amen? Okay, so garments are symbolic in the Bible as being the righteous, your, your, either your righteousness or Jesus' righteousness. I choose the righteousness of Jesus the, myself. Amen? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Now, also J. Vernon McGee likens garments to one's habits. 
Now this would seem to have merit in the context of Jude verse 23. The imagery here is perhaps of, you know, if, if garments are people's habits, think of a person's sinful habits as being like an infectious disease. You have somebody maybe like that has leprosy. Right? His garments might have that disease or smallpox or something like that. And so his ungodly habits cannot have the effect of rubbing off onto other people. And that's why uh, Jude writes, hating even the garment that is spotted or stained by the flesh. So you don't want your ungodly habits rubbing off onto other people. You know, I've used that illustration before. You have a problem with alcohol and you drink alcohol in your, uh, uh, your home, that is going to have a tendency to rub off onto your offspring. And then they have the same ungodly habit. So you need to get rid of that habit in your home and also make sure that you don't have any kind of attitude that rubs off onto people in the church. Okay, I'm almost finished here. Concluding thoughts. We need to take heed in our own personal lives, recognizing that if there is sin in them, that sin may rub off onto others in, in our families and those in the church. You ever heard that expression? No man is an island? We cannot do things in our own personal lives, even in sin, uh, uh, secret, that are not going to have adverse effects on everybody. Your life affects others. Now that sin may not be obvious to others. It may not even be obvious to you, yourself. You know, we've uh, been studying in the Wednesday night Bible studies here, as I told you before, the book of Kings. And in the book of Kings, you run across statements like this. And uh, this is in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 43. It's talking about Jehoshaphat, who was a good king, one of the good kings. Judah had some uh, good kings and it had some bad kings, in contrast to the northern kingdom of Samaria, who uh, only had bad kings. But Judah had some good kings and some bad kings. And one of those good kings is King Jehoshaphat. And it says, He walked in the, all the ways of his father Asa. Asa was another good king. He did not turn aside from them, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But there's a caveat here. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. For the people offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Now, what are these high places here? That, what's that talking about? Well, it's talking about, you know, a king could go through the land and in all the uh, valleys and everything. He could get rid of all the temples and the uh, uh, temple prostitutes and get rid of all the priests and things like that. But up there in the high places, the, the mountaintops, they still had shrines where they would burn incense and offer sacrifices to these pagan gods. You know what that's like, brothers and sisters? That's like if you're not totally committed to the Lord. 
You may give all the outward signs of being a good Christian, but are there high places in your lives that you have not submitted to the Lord? You know what you're lacking? You're lacking a total commitment. And so that's what the writer there in Kings is talking about. Jehoshaphat was a good king, but he lacked total commitment. And indeed, you read through that book of Kings, there there are only two kings that did get rid of the high places. One was Hezekiah, the other is Josiah. We haven't got to them yet in our study. Hezekiah and uh, Josiah were the only kings that got rid of those high places. And not so coincidentally, they were the best kings that Judah ever had. You want to be the best Christian for, for Jesus, live for Jesus, get rid of the high places in your life. Be totally committed to the Lord. So my question here for you today is, Do you have high places in your lives? Things that hinder you from making that total commitment to the Lord. This is the time to examine yourself and get rid of them. And I'm going to conclude before we go into the final song. Um, The last song that we played during the worship service was Hosanna by the singing group Hill song. And I've really grown to love that song. And in the second verses of it, he talks about seeing a revival come that will come as we pray and seek. We're on our knees. We're on our knees. Those are the words. And then he concludes with the third verse with this, these words. And really, they're a prayer for, to, to God. For those that want to truly be revived in their life and have revival for this nation. And revival, brothers and sisters, is only the only way that, that this nation is going to be uh, saved. And I'm, I'll just go through the words there. Heal my heart and make it clean. That's how you have revival. You pray that prayer. Heal my heart and make it clean. Everybody say, heal my heart and make it clean. Amen? Open up my eyes to the things unseen. You know, we are so bound in this physical world, brothers and sisters, we can't see into the spirit world and see what is happening there. The spiritual warfare that is going on. It's going on for the soul of this nation right now, and it's going on in your heart too. And I've been preaching about that for ever since... You know, I took over as the pastorate here. Show me how to love like you loved me. And this is the one I I just love right here. Break my heart with what breaks yours. What breaks God's heart, brothers and sisters? Do you ever think about that? Is God's heart broken when there's sin in the church? Is God's heart broken when there's sin in your life? Sorry. When there's sin in your life. I told you a couple of, a few weeks ago about this man that they had a revival going on in his church 
And he ascended the, up the, uh, uh, the hill to go to the meeting. And as he's ascending that hill, he looks over and he sees this man ascending with him. And this man has a big burden on his back. And he draws close to the man. And it was a vision. He sees it's the Lord. And he says, Savior, are you bearing the sins of the world there on your back? And the Lord tells him, no, not the sins of the world, just yours. And he related that vision to the people there at the revival. And that revival just broke out. Because that's what we need to do, is we need to have our hearts broken by what breaks the heart of God, and God is heartbroken over our own personal sin. What other things break the heart of God? The sins of the nation. Do you think the heart of God is broken with the rampant porn, uh, uh, sexual immorality that's going on in this nation? And as I've told you before, I see a real major driving force to that, to the preponderance of Internet pornography. And I pray to God that nobody in here is bound up by that. Again, it binds you, it blinds you, and it grinds you. And now it's being manifested in all these radical gender ideology. Do you think God's heart breaks over the sin of abortion? All these people... Yet God has created in the womb and they're aborted. They're killed before they ever see the light of day. You think that breaks God's heart? I think it does. What about the world? Finally look at the world. There are souls that are slipping away into eternity right now and many of them never even hear the gospel. Does God's heart Break for those. Break my heart with what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. As I walk from nothing to eternity. We played that song at the beginning. At the beginning. You know, I'm not going to take the time to play it again. If you missed it, shame on you. Because I always tell you, brothers and sisters, come early, come here at 10 o'clock. Because you're going to miss a major part of the service if you don't catch the worship service. Okay, I've said enough here. Uh,